This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. considerably looking at myself you've aged as well we've got, <laughs> we're growing up and that's putting it nicely yeah putting it nicely okay. i think both of us are past our prime <laughs> yeah, way past our prime and put us out put us out to pasture our audiences have grown exponentially but our physical well-being has deteriorated in the process way down yeah. way down but that said we both still sport long hair mine's longer right. than yours yeah 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 for now yeah okay for now <laughs> and I, for me, I associate you really with two things. The first is uh, a very sort of professional-like uh, demeanor at Gruen <laughs> Cafe, just by Jeffinor. I used yep. to start my tour there. Yep. I would see you, this is years and years ago, sitting with a laptop, getting your work done with a double espresso. And that, that, that was Sunday morning. I would also see you Saturday night, <laughs> just across the street. Where you used to live, yeah. Uh, or and these were, by the way, fantastic parties. This is going back in time now. Mm-hmm. Or uh, if we were sort of uh, a little more adventurous, I would see you at Torino. Yep. Uh, uh, my bet is that those conversations are far more profound at Torino than any podcast episode because I, I don't I recall them. I think it's the opposite. I actually think it's honestly the opposite. <laughs> there was a lot of so. shouting in a small, uh, unmasked environment for many years. I really hope if there are any words of wisdom shared there that you know they somehow resonate here as well. Because uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. Anyway, <laughs> but it's really it's a pleasure for me to do two things here. The first is to gauge your mind in general because I know that you've sort of this is what you do for a living, mm. and. Um, I also appreciate the potential disagreements we have. And yeah. sort of before we decided to do this, I kind of just shared a bit of where we might actually have some disagreement, and I think perhaps not in other areas. This is worth exploring. Before we jump into the Lebanese story, yeah. um, I, I, I noticed that, well, both of us are stateside at the moment, and, and you're in Dearborn. You're in yeah. Michigan. So yeah. just sort of in a nutshell, maybe, what are you doing in Dearborn? And maybe that can yeah. offer many segues into what we're going to discuss. Sure. Um, well, actually, um, I don't really have much of a family in America, but my only family really is, is actually from, from Dearborn and Downriver. Uh, my mom grew up here in the 1940s and 50s. Um, so my cousins and aunts and uncles are all here, actually. Um, oh. And I, I used to come here when I was a little kid for the summers. Uh, one of my one of my uncles had a gas station back then, and then we used to go to Mackinac Island in the north um, and live the kind of Midwestern summer dream uh, for a few summers. 
And then um, in 20, my mom passed away a long time ago, uh, but in 2016, I had worked for Hillary Clinton when I first, actually my first job out of college was working for Hillary in 99, 2000 when she was running for the Senate in New York. Right. Um, yeah. And I was her opposition researcher. And actually, uh, we, we, we took our early pleasures then because not only we won, which was actually the only winning race I've ever been a part of, which is scary. Hmm. Um, but we won, but we also got Giuliani out of the race early, uh, a few months before, if you remember, in May 2000, uh, due to some marital infidelity, uh, bad press, and he was replaced by Rick Lazio, and then Hillary went on to win. But I, I, um, you know, I've been in Lebanon since 2004, really. Mm. And in 2016, I decided to come back and work for Hillary. And I was the regional organizing director for, for Wayne County, which is Detroit, Dearborn, the, the biggest right. part of, of Michigan, basically. And I lost uh, this election by 10,712 votes uh, to Donald Trump in 2016. Um, so... You know, but that was my first time really being back in, in Michigan and in Dearborn since I was basically a kid. My mom passed away when I was 17. So um, I hadn't really I had not kept up with my little bit of family that I have here. Um, it was incredible coming back in 2016. And uh, it was also a distressing time to see the Democratic Party, to see the Clinton machine again, which, you know, I had really... Um, let's say soured on early on, uh, when I was working for Hillary and I actually decided instead of going to DC after she won, I decided to go into local New York city politics. And I went to city hall route rather than the DC route because, uh, because I was, uh, I was really, you know, not, I didn't really feel like the whole Clinton, uh, train was what I was interested in. Um, and what I believed in. Um, so I went the local route. For me, it's very interesting because this is the most Lebanese experience possible from an American in Dearborn. You're yeah. originally from Dearborn. <laughs> you ended up in Lebanon. And you're obsessed with politics. And, like and, and when, I, when I got my car here, I bought my insurance from Vintage Bale Insurance Company. I bought my car from Vintage Bale Brothers Motors. So you know, and um, and then the other funny thing is that my my cousin, because uh, actually my mom, uh, before she passed away, she kind of had a falling out with her family here. And uh, I, I kind of reunited with my cousin here and, and she told, because, you know, everyone always asks me 16 years in Lebanon, you know, you're not Lebanese or, you know, what, do, we, do you have any Arab background, any Lebanese background? And, uh, you know, I actually found out that my mom, uh, my mom, when she was uh, 18, she very controversially went across the tracks in Dearborn that was separating the kind of white ethnic neighborhoods and the Arab wow. neighborhoods. Hmm. And she had an Iraqi boyfriend from Basra wow. uh, in the late 1950s that almost like tore the families on both sides of the track apart. Uh, so I found out that my mom had like a, you know, illegal Arab boyfriend and Iraqi Shia guy nonetheless, which was kind of hilarious. Um, I don't know if that gives me any legitimacy at all, but it was a really great story. Um, and just funny, man, when we, when, when, when my, 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 my friend Steve and I drove out here, you know, we drove through Pennsylvania and I, I circled this on the map. There was a point at our route uh, on the interstate where we passed by Lebanon, Pennsylvania, which is right. 20 miles from Palmyra, Pennsylvania, <laughs> you know, which is, and like, you know, a bunch of other names from the Mediterranean and the Middle East and stuff. So there's a long history, you know, behind it. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of, that's what, why it made sense for me to be in Michigan. It's a battleground state. Yeah. And honestly, um, you know, in 2016, afterwards, I made the argument that 
the Clinton campaign made many failures, but when we're talking about 10,700 some odd votes here in Michigan that we lost to Trump, which was pivotal, of course, you needed Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania to win. But um, we knew early on that uh, the Arab American community was not excited about a Clinton candidacy. Mm. Bernie had won the primary here in Michigan two to one in terms of the Arab American community. Right. They were not excited. They did not believe in the Clintons and in Hillary Clinton. And ultimately, lower uh, African American turnout in Detroit, but fatally, I think, uh, lower turnout in the Arab American districts of Dearborn is what ultimately sunk this state. I mean, we should have won by a lot more, but definitely that little bit of margin. And the interesting thing here, which you might find also fascinating, is in that election in 2016, Trump didn't get more votes than Mitt Romney had four years ago in the Arab American districts. Mm -hmm. He got the same number. I mean, mm -hmm. some of these precincts in Dearborn, it was like tracking it almost exactly the same number, you know, 10,000 votes here, 7,400 here, et cetera. It was our numbers went down by 20, 30 percent in these precincts. Um, so that was... That was really disappointing, and it was disappointing in the last few days of the election. We had been telling them for months that we have serious problems in Michigan, that the polling was not correct, that the headquarters was looking at, that our voter contact was telling us a very different story, and that we especially had problems with the Arab American community here. Um, they realized that, but unfortunately, and this was one of the low points for me in, in the campaign, you know, we had asked that Hillary or even the, the vice presidential nominee, uh, Tim Kaine, you know, just come and listen to the community. You know, we just need we need an hour. And Hillary does not need to lay out a plan to liberate, you know, Jerusalem. She has to just like take the time to listen to the community. Fortunately, that was one of the communities in the country that she took for granted. And we paid a pretty heavy price, you know, basically seven days before the election when they knew we had problems. Uh, Hillary came. Hillary came to Michigan. She went to Detroit. She did an African-American mainly event, which was important. But then to my uh, astonishment, she on her way to the airport, she stopped 200 meters from my campaign office, her headquarters in Dearborn. And instead of, you know, I mean, we could have gotten any guy, you know, we could have gotten a whole bunch of community leaders together. Everyone was excited to listen to her, to hear her, to talk, etc. She went to, you know, kind of white working class diner that was 200 meters away from our office and did a photo op with a bunch of, you know, white working class voters, which in the heart of the Arab American capital of the U.S. was seen as a real slight. And that was the first time that the main Arab American newspaper um, uh, Arab American News uh, did not endorse uh, did not endorse the Democratic candidate for president. They came out uh, very ambiguously and said we can't endorse Hillary Clinton. And you know, for me, with such a small margin, that was uh, that was something that could have been repaired fairly easily. But unfortunately, it wasn't. Nick, by extension, are you now directly involved with the Biden campaign, or is it more just sort of Democratic parties? Yeah. The, the the way these uh, campaign finance, you know, awful way that American elections work, especially since the Citizens United decision, which basically said, you know, money can talk however much it wants in elections. Um, you know, these things are kind of rigged very strangely. So in 2016, I wasn't working for the Hillary Clinton campaign. I was working for the Michigan State Party. Right. Okay. So Michigan, the, yeah, right. Right. Um, it maybe gives you more flexibility in that sense. In that it's, it, 
it gives you, it doesn't give you, I mean, all it is, is about money. You know, it was because state party limits were, you know, much more than, you know, it was just a way to get more money into American elections. Uh, so, um, so in, in 2016, I was that right now I'm just a late help volunteer, like a lot of folks around the country. I came back, I, you know, I was able to take leave of, of my job with the humanitarian dialogue center, uh, where, where I work on Lebanon, uh, in Lebanon, I was able to take leave and come here for the last month and a half of the, of the campaign, help uh, out. I find it very fascinating because you're, in a way, you're you're doing two things at once. There's a lot of grassroots sort of volunteer activity that, that you're involved yeah. with at a later stage, but still a vital stage. And you also sort of manage to still have the geopolitical story sort of in the background and you're able to yeah. write about it. So you're, yeah. you're almost able to see it from both sides. And actually, I think on both sides, you're able to see it from the very domestic and also sort of the maybe the, the larger story at play. At least yeah. when it comes to Lebanon in particular. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to introduce your, your article first, and we can kind of explore all of the above. Breaking the Cycle, A New American Approach to Lebanon, which is in Middle East Directions. I guess that's the journal for the European University Institute. Yeah. Um, I, I'll say from the beginning that I spent a lovely weekend in Dearborn. Um, I think this was uh, last summer. Summer of oh, 2019. Okay. And I can before remember, the pandemic also. Wow. Before the pandemic. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of what you wrote in that piece, mm. these are discussions I had with people in Dearborn. Yeah. So whether it's Lebanese sort of diaspora yeah. or all types. Um, I, uh, yeah, the, the article resonated with me and it resonated because I, I do find some disagreements, but I'd like to start with the agreements first. That more people will stay tuned to the episode that way and see how <laughs> yeah. we battle Let's things out it. later. So let's start with the agreement. I, I'm getting from you that you see a, a resounding failure in American policy towards Lebanon, and also that there is a need for some regional understanding, at least when it comes to dislodging Lebanon from the wider conflicts at play. Mm -hmm. And you reference Saudi Arabia and Iran. You also maybe, in a way, I, I see eye to eye on this, that there should be an understanding between those countries, at least when it comes to shielding Lebanon from further conflict. Do, do you see room for what could be a regional sort of a regional push to neutralize Lebanon? And I know that word is complicated. Yeah. I know the word neutrality, we may even see sort of differences there and what that actually means. Mm -hmm. But beyond rushing to aid uh, on a humanitarian level, yeah. whether that's upcoming uh, meetings in, in France, and Macron has sort of hinted at that yeah. already. Do you see a way to structurally dislodge Lebanon yeah. from any regional conflict, whether it's Saudi Arabia and Iran today or other conflicts down the road? Is yeah. there, and, and, and is that where you see sort of a, a maybe a starting point mm. to perhaps permanently keeping Lebanon away from all types of regional conflicts mm. so just maybe we can start there because i think i think we do see eye type but i'm curious from your side what, yeah yeah maybe uh if, if, if there's a well, mechanism and, and how you would define it well look the, the first thing is that um it's really important in these discussions that in this paper and what i'm talking about now is from a u.s interest point of view mm -hmm. right i'm not a lebanese citizen yeah i'm not talking about nor should i assume what is good for 
Lebanese, mm. for Palestinians, for Syrian refugees in Lebanon, for the sex or whatever it may be. So this is this is a first really important thing that's uh, uh, I think crucial for for people that are putting forward policy ideas. So mm-hmm. um, that's the first thing to say. Um, the second thing is that I think uh, a key thing from the October 17 revolution that I think we probably agree is that neutralizing Lebanon just won't work anymore in the sense of it needs to not just be neutral and neutralized, there needs to be deep, systematic, structural reform for the country and the people to survive. So even the patriarch's call, which is the old call of the decades that we know for so long of neutrality, it needs to be you know, somehow uh, cantonized away from the conflicts of geopolitics, like that actually, that, that won't work anymore at all for people, right? Uh, It's certainly, uh, not only is it unrealistic, I think, to think of Lebanon as neutral, but I think given the geopolitics, but also it needs to go well beyond uh, neutrality. So the question is, is there a way to give Lebanon breathing space to do the kind of deep structural reform that I think is what is good from an American interest point of view both morally and strategically, okay? I think it's the right thing to do. Um, And I may personally, as someone that loves Lebanon, that's been in Lebanon for 16 years and has so much of my life there, um, you know, I also personally believe that that's really important for the country and for our friends and our family and for for the future. Um, So it needs to be put on a, like you said, permanent track in that direction. So my paper is saying there's an opportunity after November 3rd, if there's a transition away from the chaotic, I would argue reckless and quite um, uh, problematic Trump administration, and specifically the kind of sometimes chaotically applied but maximum pressure doctrine, which I see very crudely because it is kind of a crude doctrine is you know, if we can just stew Hezbollah and Iran in Lebanon, um, then that's that's a good objective, even if Hezbollah may be the one, the last man standing in a collapsing Lebanon, for example, which I think is the more likely result, even if it won't actually end up in regime change in Iran and the end of Hezbollah and its independent weaponry. So I think there's a real opportunity Um, presented by a change in American leadership because it is the superpower in the world. Also because what's going to be interesting after November 3rd, if we win, is there may be a lot of accounting that needs to happen with key American allies in the region. Uh, The leadership of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states um, wedded themselves very closely to Donald Trump as Donald Trump as a personality, as the driving force of American power. I think a lot of the right-wing leadership in Israel too, Netanyahu specifically, they hitched their wagon to Trump, to the Trump train. And there is going to be a, a a new American leader in town, it looks like, and I hope, of course, that's what I'm working for, uh, after November 3rd. And I think that that offers an opportunity. I should also say something else, which is, you know, it's not to dismiss that the Trump administration policy till now, um, whether by, uh, by design or, or happenstance, um, you know, Iran and its allies in the region are in a very difficult position. 
It's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're on the end. You know, Hezbollah, like I say in the paper, is, is you know going to be the last man standing. You know, they'll be the one to to bear the brunt of a collapsed Lebanon much better than their competitors or enemies in the region or their allies uh, in Lebanon. Um, but that said, uh, they're on their back feet. So my argument is, let's take advantage. Let's leverage this Trump train chaos of three years, and let's present a rational de-escalation approach, one that's based on dialogue, and that's also based on, you know, some uh, realistic accounting of everyone's interests and capabilities. Um, We want, the the progressive wing of the Democratic Party wants to end the, the war in Yemen. And if we win on November 3rd, we will then have the votes and the executive branch in order to end arms sales to Saudi Arabia. That's a key demand now of a majority of senators, majority of Congress people. The only thing that's preventing that from being used as leverage to kind of put pressure on the Saudis is Donald Trump and the need for two-thirds uh, overcoming a presidential veto. So these are big changes that could, I think, all be leveraged to try and get a new regional security architecture that I think at the very least could give some breathing space to Lebanon for some deep systematic reform. Now, I'm not an expert on Egypt, on Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, on Iran. These are all places where I personally, personally would love to see more tolerance, more democracy, more openness, more socioeconomic opportunity. Um, You know, in Lebanon, there is, unlike those countries, I think, there's a real opportunity to actually have some real deep systematic reform. Um, There are ways in which that chessboard, I think, could be threaded to, for example, decrease the sectarian aspect of the Lebanese system, to make the Lebanese socioeconomic system fairer, to bring in a new social contract, which is really being discussed, whether it be at the street level by protesters or the French-led parlors or in the back rooms of political parties. Everyone's talking about the need for a new social contract. Um, Those are things that are thankfully possible in Lebanon, but this country of 4.5 million that's sandwiched between probably two of the most difficult, and that's a kind word, neighbors in the world, Syria and Israel, those guys aren't going away. It's a small country, and it needs that geopolitical and regional breathing space, unfortunately. You know, you laid out a lot. There. And I'm glad you did because you make my job much easier. <laughs> you, in a way, you expanded on many different topics, and I think maybe, perhaps, my uh, I, I overshot. We may have more disagreements than agreements. <laughs> uh oh. No, well, no, that'll but, be good. no, but I'm glad. I'm glad we're going to go down this road together because I think uh, there there may even be a misunderstanding in terms of the uh, the foundational flaw. And uh, okay. let's, let's start with maybe what you said at the, at, the, at the beginning, which was that neutrality, that, that sort of, that topic, or let's say the, mm. way, the way that Patriarch approached it uh, a few months ago and, and the last few weeks, that it's sort of, it's something from the past, that now mm. it doesn't really work. I disagree yeah. there. Now, yeah. I, and I'll, I'll sort of, I'll explain why, and I'd love to sort of see if, if you, uh, any of this would resonate. I think to ensure some breathing space on the Lebanese scene, um, you have to end the civil war. And in my opinion, I don't think the civil war is over. Yeah. The fighting, the fighting from the 1970s and 80s, that sort of uh, the most violent aspect of, of the war is gone. 
there isn't there's no green line there's no sniper's den there's no sort of alleyways where you can get shot simply by crossing the street true there aren't there are no militia like checkpoints monitoring people's uh, confessions and where they go none of that exists at the same time there is a group that retains its weapons and it's a civil war era militia now i i understood from your piece that you do see that groups uh, standing as not necessarily favorable for long-term reform, and I got that from from the piece that there is room to criticize that group's position. Mm-hmm. But I sense that that group's capabilities, the way they are now, uh, not only prevents sort of the the structural reform and the systematic change that you that you mentioned, which is desperately needed, mm-hmm. but I think it also, by default, uh, it guarantees that Lebanon will not only never be neutral but that it is in a way locked, locked in regional conflict. Despite valiant efforts to challenge all political parties in the last year, and you mentioned October 17, that is the magic of October 17. Everyone is exposed, period. Even if their differences are different, but it doesn't matter. It's that all of them are part of the problem. That group, Hezbollah, stands to lose the most. And I think, I think their ability now to sort of delay desperately needed reform is is really part of the story and i see it as sort of central and i don't mean in terms of this group and that's it it's any group that can leverage leverage authority to perhaps even help help corrupt and perhaps even dismantle what most countries take for granted which is in essence sovereignty and I, I see that as a foundational issue, that it's hard to move on from a civil war environment without ending all types of groups' behavior that are really from the civil war. They're not from a country that 30 years after the civil war is getting its act together. Mm-hmm. It's the contrary. And, and you point at this, actually, for many reasons. Hezbollah has only gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. Yeah. And I know that you sort of emphasize U.S. sort of U.S. Uh, policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, I think it also goes beyond U.S. policy that the group has. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So, of course. do you see? I mean, I see them as I see their weapons as central. To, Absolutely. To to not being able to do basic things, and the basics are not happening, and mm. that group is able to put pressure yeah. to keep the status quo as long as possible. There needs to be a way to deal, to reduce Hezbollah's desire and ability to exercise violence. But that way is not going to come from direct force and pressure, and certainly not military force. Mm -hmm. It's actually going to come from what some people call a flanking strategy, an oblique strategy, but it involves actually co-opting them deeper into the fabric of Lebanon. Okay. What that means, though, is to challenge your assumption, which is when I, and again, as a non-Lebanese, so I haven't experienced all the different ramifications of anti-reform, let's call it, right? But, you know, I I opened a bar in Jamaica in 2010. By the way, I'm glad, you know what, that is a subject on it. We'll we'll keep that for the end, because I'd like to wrap it up with that very lovely addition yeah, but that's the, yeah. We, that's, that's that's those are those are good. Those that that I learned a lot about yeah. Lebanon well, and about of, embassies a, and yeah. all this stuff. So <laughs> we'll get to know, that at the end. That's, that's yeah. a good way to end our sort of. That's a, yeah. it's a lovely story. But uh, sorry, okay. go, go ahead. Good story, actually, um, 
But my, my point is that um, I don't necessarily see Hezbollah as itself as being, if, we, if one can theoretically separate the weapons issue mm -hmm. as a part of a regional struggle, and yes, as a part of, of allied action and Iranian interests and other interests, not just mm -hmm. Iran as well. If one can separate that out, I don't see Hezbollah as being particularly a bad boy when it comes to reform issues in Lebanon. I think that, you know, my, my feeling over these 16 years is that when it comes to a lot of the worst parts of the Lebanese system, these involve the banking sector, finance, these involve corruption, these involve uh, sectarianism, which a lot of the other establishment parties have exercised, including American allies, uh, for quite some time. Um, so I, I don't come at it from the premise that Hezbollah in and of itself is like the biggest impediment to reform. And actually, but can I push on you? I'm, yeah. going, I'm going to take liberty interrupting at this moment. Yeah, that, that's an imagined Hezbollah. That's not the Hezbollah that exists in the Lebanese. But, but the Hezbollah that exists wants to protect its weapons and it wants to protect its project. Now, we can argue about whether that project is good or bad, which I won't as a non-Lebanese, but like their, their weapons are, I mean, <laughs> my example is in 2005, I mean, Hezbollah never wanted to be a part of the Lebanese government. It never wanted to get into the ministries. It was forced to by strategic necessity because their Syrian benefactors, their Syrian protectors were kicked out of the country. They had to go deeper and deeper into the state society corrupt matrix and indeed the fight in 2005 6 7 and 8 at least from their perspective and i think from from a reasonable perspective was over control over the legitimate democratic state institution and they you know for many people unfortunately from their perspective fortunately they won that struggle with the doha accord of 2008 they won that struggle after 2009 elections to a certain degree, certainly after 2011 when Hariri was basically forced to, to leave. Um, the struggle became over the state. Hezbollah never wanted that because they know that they were one of the main people to criticize the corruption of the state, the uh, sectarian basis of the state. Of course, that's from a very narrowly uh, a narrow point of view because they saw demographic numbers and they wanted to... They wanted more power within uh, the Lebanese uh, system. Um, so I'm, I'm not attaching whether it's good or bad, but what I'm trying to say is that um, if we're able to separate out the weapons aspect of it, which, again, is just the most crucial aspect for Hezbollah to protect its project, um, I don't think that they're necessarily going to be, for example, the ones to uh, put the most amount of resistance against uh, you know, uh, an electricity reform plan. I agree example. with you on that, but I don't, I've never seen that Hezbollah that you're describing. The Hezbollah that you're describing, uh, mm. when you detach its weapons, is the Hezbollah I think that every Lebanese should, should want, which is a, just another political party that you can hold to account. Mm. And it's a political party that you can sort of challenge with authority, and if it's corrupt, it should be ushered out or mm -hmm. urged to reform. Its leadership should be held to account. I think that's the goal. And I, mm -hmm. I agree with the wider sentiment that, yeah, of course, this is not a group that you can challenge effectively through force. It simply wouldn't work. 
the average Lebanese will pay an ultimate price for that as well. So there's exactly. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. But okay. the, the willingness maybe, or maybe it's not willingness, I don't know. But the, the framework that you're describing mm. is a, just another political party that is maybe above the fray because it's been less involved in decades-long corruption on the state level. But that mm. said, that said, their weapons are front and center to the post-war order. And I, and I appreciate what you said earlier, which is they took over Syria's indirect influence over Lebanon. Which they didn't want to have to play that role, and they went into it. But whether, they had whether they, I mean, I, I'll agree with you in that they're best served with an indirect, one-foot-out policy where they don't mm -hmm. need to manage day-to-day -day affairs. That's I agree right. with you 100% on that. But whether they wanted to or not, they've crippled the current state as we know it i don't know i don't know if that sort of there, there's almost like an acceptance That's, that they are just one of many parties and their weapons are kind of side story it's a regional story it's yeah. it is a regional and it is by and large an iranian story and it has its adversaries and it has an american dimension as well but i don't know if we can talk about a hezbollah as just a standard political party that is less corrupt because they No, we can't. Yeah. We can't. All I'm, all I'm trying to say is that, you know, after 16 years of seeing such deep corruption across, including many of our American partners and institutions and establishments, uh, you know, uh, it, when it comes to the issue of, 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 let's say, debilitating the Lebanese state, of kind of negative movements for the Lebanese state and for deepening of corruption. Um, you know, the idea is that there's a lot of blame to go around, one. Two, the crucial issue for me is that we shouldn't be here at this point right now. I mean, the idea was the Obama administration in concluding the Iran deal, they believed that Hillary was going to be president. Mm. They decided, because of the political costs involved, that they were not going to try to link a regional security dialogue with an Iran nuclear deal. The Iranians said, we're only going to talk about the nuclear deal. Right. And this is taken as the kind of, you know, the foundational error. The reason why the Obama administration, I think, made that decision was because in 2014 and 15, one, they just, they had put so much political capital into this real huge historic revision towards Iran and a multilateral mm, deal mm, to mm, try mm. and deal with the nuclear program, which is far more of a concern to America and its allies than little old Lebanon and Hezbollah's weapons. Right. Um, they didn't have the political capital. One, they didn't even have the political capital to get a vote on this. You know, this, this is why Trump was able to just take the piece of paper and rip it up because it was simply an executive action yeah. because yeah. Our, the Democratic Party, Obama, we didn't have the votes to do it. Their assumption, their, you know, inwardly complacent and kind of arrogant assumption was that Hillary was going to win. So what you would do is you would put the Iran deal into place in 2015, 2016 Hillary would come in. And then you would be able to build on the goodwill from the Iranian nuclear program to de-escalate the war in Yemen, get a regional dialogue going, figure out the American withdrawal from Iraq, figure out the Syrian war de-escalation, and cool things down and figure out a new regional security architecture. 
problem is, is that Trump got elected. I mean, the problem from the Obama-Hillary point of view was that Trump got elected. And what he did on day one, as we know, basically, I mean, it took some time, but more or less instituted the complete reversal of the Obama rapprochement process and went towards maximum pressure and eventually ripping up the deal. That created the climate where I think, um, you know, the effort to um, naturalize, I won't use the word Lebanese, but to naturalize um, and to um, reduce Hezbollah's ability and desire to exercise violence, either at home or across borders. Um, that, unfortunately, that whole process was like suddenly reversed, where we're in a confrontational situation. Now, the, for me, the stupidity of the maximum pressure thing is that they were leading that train, they reversed that train. And let's be honest, the reason why largely Trump did this is because he hates everything that Obama does and wants to reverse it. And two, because Netanyahu and you know the Saudi leadership uh, felt as if they had an opportunity to not have to go down the difficult road of figuring out a reasonable relationship with this huge country, Iran, uh, which has many problematic aspects in the region, as it believes its opponents do. So that really sharp reversal, it prevented, in my view, it prevented what could have happened, which is it's possible to have, for example, a discussion in Lebanon, I think, about creating a Lebanese Senate, as is called for yeah. in the Constitution. Well, actually, that's a point of agreement. This is all that I want. Yeah, I, it's I, all possible. Yeah, but no, I think we're, this is where we can agree, probably. But no, what I'm trying no, to say, man, is that yeah. without, without the... If you have that, you can't have that discussion with Hezbollah in a climate of maximum pressure. You can have that in the climate of what was supposed to happen in 2016. You know, I appreciate, I actually appreciate that, that sort of wider perspective, and, and it is going back years now, to the yeah. sort of the hope, at least within the Obama, Obama administration, and maybe initially among other regional players, that that outreach was seen as something positive in its earliest stage. Yeah. I'm talking really 2013, maybe 2012, 2013, yeah. the sort of the, where other countries saw perhaps an opening to engage yeah. the Iranian regime. But it is, I think, also important to point out, those are the years that Hezbollah rushes into Syria. I mean, this is a stage in Hezbollah's right. story where it becomes even even more invested in regional conflict than, than before. That's True. not that's not a Trump era issue. That that's the second term. No, that's definitely that's that's Obama. And remember yeah. also in Yemen too, and also in Iraq, sure. right? But so, yeah. remember that those are. I mean, ironically, remember, Hezbollah and uh, America were fighting on the same side against Daesh at a certain moment in the Syria war. The Iranians and the Americans were fighting in Erbil and Mosul. Together, it was Iranian, you know, artillery and American planes that pushed Daesh back from the capital. So this is this is a this is actually a moment when you're talking about the regional expansion. Yes, it's true, but there I would lay the blame on the, the allowing the war in Syria to go in the direction that it did. That can be a whole different debate, but also allowing the war in Yemen too. But that web, which is a very sort of, it's a very it's a large web. And yeah, there yeah. are moments where you have sort of odd alliances that sort of they're fleeting, but they're important to remember. And yeah. I, I mean, I perhaps wouldn't go as far as saying American and Hezbollah soldiers standing side by side, but there are, there were common interests, at least in mm. some stages, yeah. but at least in the Lebanese context. Yeah. This was detrimental to Lebanon. 
Yeah. You have yeah, yeah. Lebanese going to Syria. Yeah. Initially, a group that was denying its involvement. And then mm. later, sort of, that becomes its raison d'etre. It's almost mm. like Israel takes a backstage to the narrative. So mm. that becomes extremely... Uh, the potential for violence in Lebanon, mm. the state's inability to control. It's not just its borders, but to be able to even have a say in how Hezbollah operates outside Lebanon, Lebanon yeah. inside. It led to moments within the Lebanese context that I think were favorable to neutrality. And I just want to go back to there briefly. Mm. I know we kind of punched it a lot, but let's Please. just touch on it again. I mean, there, there is a Ba'adha declaration in mm -hmm. 2012. Mm -hmm. Where the Lebanese state, sort of mm -hmm. the president, Michel Sleiman, says that this disassociation mm -hmm. policy. Mm -hmm. I think that's good enough. You don't need to have this sort of romantic view of neutrality. And I don't think I would agree to a point that neutrality yeah. is maybe, maybe it's not exactly what people are. We're not talking about taking no sides between Israel and the Palestinians and that stuff. I think it's more disassociation. And it's saying if, mm. there's, if there's a regional problem, don't get involved. That's yeah, but that was tough, man. Remember, I mean, in those period, at the end of 2012 and 2013-14, I mean, there were like car bombs coming almost on a weekly basis into Lebanon. You no, know? no but, but that's my point, is that the, the disassociation policy that Hezbollah mm. signed on to at the yeah. beginning, yeah. Not only in signature, without any yeah. sort of uh, desire yeah. to implement it, would shield the idea is to shield Lebanon from all of its neighbors and regional problems. But it's nice sentiment, but it wasn't going to work. It didn't shield. It can't shield. The, the dynamics are too powerful. Because Hezbollah escalated yeah. its involvement in the region, it invited more and more. East I got you. We get into a cart, you know, a cart before the horse, chicken and the egg sort of thing. And I no, mean, no, without no, no. not 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 chicken before the egg. On the contrary, on the contrary, yeah. is that Lebanon has no rule in the Syrian war. There's no chicken or egg there. It does have a world. It's it's neighbor. But you're I mean, and it's 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 sharing. I mean, you know. Is, the, so this is where I can, this is I think. The well, you can't disassociate it. This is I think the fundamental. It's a part of the regional war going on. No, I know, and this is the fundamental disagreement I think we have, and I I was going to save it for the end, but let's put it right. up now. Yeah. And you tell me if I'm wrong, because I really want to know if you see this as sort of too far. I think you have a default tolerance to Hezbollah. Mm. And I want you to tell me if that's right or wrong. Tolerance to yeah. the to the current, uh, the current version of Hezbollah, not the not the one that we were describing earlier. That is a political party, separate from its weapons altogether. Not that. That's actually that's the desired, I think, uh, version of Hezbollah, but not that one. I'm talking about. There's an acceptance of Hezbollah's narrative, mm. and I read that sometimes, not just in this article, but in sort of I, from time to time. I stumbled upon work that you produced, that there's mm. a, not a preference to Hezbollah. It's not like that's the group that I would join. No, not that, not that, yeah. on the contrary. Yeah. You've sort of, you spelled it out several ways yeah. that this is not your conflict. You're just, mm. gonna, yeah. But, but I do sense that you're, you're almost um, defending their version of events, which mm. I think that's the narrative that they would produce that yes, there's a conflict next door, we have a role to play. So, look, for me, a key interest of American policy is to reduce Hezbollah's ability and desire to exercise violence, whether at home or abroad. So my interest is how can I reach that? What's the most reasonable way to reach that objective? And I think 
it's unreasonable and history has shown that to try and use force and pressure against Hezbollah, it actually produces opposite outcomes to those which are intended. So if we want to use the word tolerance, again, there's not a value judgment of whether Hezbollah is better or worse for the Palestinian cause, for Lebanon, mm. for mm. Shiism, for you know, whatever it may be. Mm. Um, I don't have a dog in that, in that fight. Right. Um, right. What, I do, what I do strongly uh, believe is that uh, we don't have to tolerate, as American policy, we don't have to tolerate Hezbollah or not. The idea is to recognize facts on the ground, the reality of their power, and what is the best way to reduce their ability and desire to use violence. Okay. Now, that means if that means that I I don't believe that uh, I, I don't care. You know, I don't think they were right or wrong about Syria. That's I don't have a I don't have a I don't have a point of view on that. Okay. What so, I do, so you... I, I don't. I, it's not my. That's not my. It's not my fight, you know. I mean, if I was Syrian or Lebanese, I think I would be entitled to have an opinion on that. Okay, mm, mm, mm. Um, I, as a human, personally do, of course. Mm. But if we're talking about American policy and American interests, my point is, you know, let's say Hezbollah is totally wrong, and they, you know, they did awful things in Syria, which of course they did, and many actors did, including my country as well, including a lot of pro-American parties. Um, etc., including pro-American allies or state allies like the Turks, etc., etc. Um, but be that as it may, right? Without getting into a moral judgment about that, I have, uh, I believe, in a different approach to try and get to the end result. And if you want to call that tolerating Hezbollah, I would think of it somewhat differently. It's about realistically approaching the problem that Hezbollah is for U.S. interests, and what is the best way to address that problem? And I think the best way is not to try and attack it, put more force and pressure. In fact, it's to draw it deeper into a reformed, more reformed, more sovereign, more um, uh, uh, Lebanon that is, let's say, shielded like you want from the regional and geopolitical pressures. But that means, Ronnie, that means that we have to have a plan to deal with those geopolitical pressures. And that's why in the paper, what I'm calling for is exactly what uh, the Biden campaign is called for. A return to the Iran deal yeah. and a regional dialogue. Well, let me ask you in terms of just lexicon, the, and I, I sort of, it's repeated several times in the piece, the, um, there's almost like a pro-U.S. Lebanese conglomerate of groups, and then there's an anti-U.S. or yeah, so yeah, sort yeah, of like a, not maybe not that maybe not that blunt, but it does come out that it's American allies, American adversaries in Lebanon. Mm. Do you? And I'm asking you as sort of mm. this, this the the person you just described who doesn't have a dog in the fight. Mm. Do do you see Lebanese that are speaking against? as well as weapons as default American allies? Is that sort of a position that therefore comes That's with what I disagree. Yeah, this, this is what I disagree with. This is why I talk about a return to the Eisenhower doctrine. You know, when American Marines first landed in, in Beirut in 1958, they thought that there was going to be a Moscow on the Mediterranean. They landed with tactical nuclear weapons for the first time in a, in a theater conflict offshore. You know, they thought that Nasser was... Uh, going to be king of Lebanon and that, you know, the Soviets were going to install a major military base there. 
What they discovered was that, and you know, this is a long story, but one important lesson, which I point to the NSC memo that came yes. of this, which was, yes. I think, has, you know, I know it's, it's in some ways it sounds overly broad and maybe even cliche, but I think it's the kernel of a different approach, which is to say that, you know, they thought when the Marines landed, they thought they knew who America's allies were, specific parties personalities, etc. And what they discovered was that there was a vigorous debate within Lebanon about the direction of the country, but they also discovered that some of their purported allies misled them, and also that some of their purported allies were, you know, involved in corruption, involved in the uh, personalization of Lebanese state institutions for their own narrow political interests, etc. But what I'm trying to say from that, if we fast forward, is, you know, what I, I hope we can agree on this, and I think this is one of the key lessons for me of the October 17th revolution, is that, you know, a lot of America's allies over these decades, even the ones that have been the best at kind of opposing Hezbollah, some of them have been involved in some of the things that are killing the country. They're killing the country. Um, Let me explain. And that's, that's a huge problem. And I, I agree with you on that. I want to expand on, on that. On that. Well... There's two things here I want to get into. The, the What force and pressure really is at the moment vis-a-vis mm. -vis Hezbollah in, in mm. Lebanon. But before that, I'd like to go back in time with you because I, I appreciated your, your referencing a doctrine from the, from the 50s and sort of a different era mm. altogether. I, yeah. I'm going to quote you to you here. Our man in Beirut, mm. disproportionately investing in specific personalities and parties deemed at the moment to be pro-American rather than in strong democratic institutions for the country as a whole. Mm. became the default setting for protecting U.S. interests and, mm. as well as all too often claimed, perceived Lebanese interests. Mm. So I'm going to take issue with maybe what you see as perceived Lebanese interests. Mm. Do you apply this sort of what you just did that, that yeah. to a Lebanese politician, personality, or a political party that states that there should not be any sub-state weaponry today. Mm. Is, that, is that a perceived no. Lebanese interest to you? What, what I don't like is when, especially I mean, in... Sorry, I'll just interrupt. Only yeah. in that if it lines up with American interests. Yeah. Is that automatically no. to you? Is that a toxic relationship? That it's sort of... It's, it's no, not a... Lebanese necessarily, that it gets tied up with American strategy. All I was, all I was trying to say there is that especially since the end of the Cold War, mm. Americans, America's unipolar decades, we have had a propensity to speak in the name of other people's interests. And that's one of the key problems that I myself personally try to avoid. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's why I started this conversation by saying I'm not speaking from Palestinian refugee and Sabrashatila's interests or from a religious guy's interests or from a woman that is facing, you know, domestic abuse in Lebanon or that's suffering from the sectarian system or Lebanese interests. I'm talking from an American interest point of view. And we can have a discussion about why and what that means. But all I was saying there is that, you know, all too often, and this especially I think was unfortunately operative in the Cedar Revolution moment after the Syrians were very you know, deftly through diplomatic work, not through force and pressure, but really through diplomacy, were forced to leave Lebanon, more or less. Um, 
you know, that we, for those years, we really speak in the name of the other. We speak in the name of Lebanese and what Lebanese want, you know. So Lebanese don't want uh, Hezbollah's X, Y, and Z. You know, I, I may agree with that personally. I find it problematic for American power to speak and to assume the interests, especially of small states. And especially, man, especially, we're not talking about Belgium or Switzerland or France, right? I mean, we're talking about a country that has been riven by a tremendous series of post-World War II and pre-World War II conflicts. And a lot of that has been driven, a lot of that during the Cold War was driven by American and Soviet power. It's two, you know, it's two sides. I'm not saying America was the only one doing wrong things. What I'm saying is that after, at this unipolar moment, we had a chance globally to kind of breathe and to recognize that we had a huge preponderance of power and that that should allow us to be more flexible in offering concessions to our enemies, to trying out new modus vivendi, to trying out um, new forms, because we could be more flexible. We had the power to do that. And that's why after 2005, I actually, I wrote a paper, if, if, well, not four, but with the incoming Obama administration in 2008, which was kind of titled, unfortunately, the same sort of thing that I wrote in 2020. But it was at that moment, man, and this is maybe where we agree, Hezbollah was not the as strong as it is now. And I believed in 2008, coming out of the Doha Accords, that a new U.S.-led approach, especially by the new Democratic incoming administration, could really um, help to reduce Hezbollah's desire and ability to use violence, and that there could be a peaceful, non-military way to slowly, over time, hook its independent armed arsenal to sovereign, democratic, just Lebanese institutions. And I think that there was a pathway. My problem now is that if you fast forward from 2008 to 2020, for a variety of reasons, Hezbollah is way too strong, and they're way too much of a of a absolutely um, essential part of the regional conflict that's happening and Iranian interests as well as a part of this titanic struggle. There's no way to deal with Hezbollah's independent weaponry a reasonable way. I mean, a way that doesn't lead to a lot of collateral death and destruction and that I think is morally wrong to sacrifice because those dead people don't get to vote on it as but one thing. Um, but now uh, we need to deal with that regional, we need to de-escalate that regional situation in order for anything to be done on Hezbollah's weapons or on reform. So if we can give that breathing space, I think there's a reasonable pathway for Hezbollah's weapons. Let's remember, it's very interesting. Nasrallah gave a speech in uh, February 2000. Uh, I was working for Hillary at the time. And this was when uh, Hafez Assad, the president of Syria, was on his way basically to Geneva. You've, to aged, you've aged both of us right now. That's yeah, yeah, 20, well, there you go. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. <laughs> it was the collapse of the Syria-Israel peace track was in March of mm. 2000. Mm. Um, and I can go into a whole you know, issue of how our campaign in New York played into that, but be that as it may, Nasrallah gave a, a, an interview and also a speech, and we have this in my edited collection of his speeches uh, that we did a, a while ago. Um, and it was very important because he was asked a very provocative question by an Egyptian um, interviewer. Uh, what would you do when there is an Israeli embassy, an Israeli flag in downtown Beirut, 
because Syria is going to peace. Syria is going to peace with Israel, uh, brokered by the U.S. And Nasrallah answered, you know, we are going to object to this Israeli presence. We're going to organize conferences against it. We do not want these people trading in our regions or doing business in our regions. Basically, what he was saying was, we're going to have to do a BDS because the hard power at that time with 20, 40,000 troops, Syrian troops and Mukhabarat and others, they didn't have the balance of power to try and militarily oppose what looked like in a few weeks was going to be a peace deal that was going to put Lebanon, Syria and Israel at peace. Hezbollah was going to have to integrate its weapons, lay down its arms. But Nasrallah said, I don't think the region is going in that direction. And I think ultimately the Israelis and the Americans will not be able to conclude the agreement. Now, of course, he gave a lot of honorifics to the, you know, the, the Arab, uh, you know, and, and resistance credentials of Hafez Assad, which, you know, probably he actually didn't really believe much in. But in the end of the day, the U.S. and Bill Clinton was unable to do a deal and the Syria tract fell apart. And Hezbollah was not confronted with an end to its weapons. So what I'm trying to use with that example is we're at a uh, 20 years later, the price for Hezbollah to start to put its weapons in the service of, that's a later point, or even related to sovereign democratic institutions in Lebanon, that's going to take, that price is much higher, much higher. And it's definitely now linked not only to the kind of, you know, the Syria track as it was 20 years ago, but it's related to the titanic struggle between Israel, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states. And that's where this new administration, I think, is going to try to work. And unfortunately for me, that's the only hope of peacefully dealing with Hezbollah's independent weapon. Without going too far back and sort of, this would, I think it would be a mini series of uh, conversations. Because, yeah. no, I, and I really like that you referenced a speech that, I, I mean, I don't think of sort of those older speeches because they, yeah. it's, it's like, it's almost like a bygone era. And uh, yeah, that, but it, it, it does also prove a point, which is Hezbollah is not an independent actor on the Lebanese stage. If, the, if Iran, if the Iranian regime were to collapse, you have an Iranian regime that is suddenly not interested in Hezbollah. Hezbollah will be very vulnerable. And yeah, Hezbollah sure. would, would have to calculate its decisions. And you know what? Yeah. They've done that many times. So that's yeah. not, they're, yeah, they will not stand in the way of a Syria that is uh, negotiating with, uh, yeah. with Israel. That also perhaps includes other chapters where they were less inclined to fight in the South. And this is yeah. in particular the last few years. Mm -hmm. They do, they, yeah, there is a pragmatic pragmatism in terms of survivability as well. That's, that's for sure. But in these last two decades, Hezbollah has had so much operating space to mm. dement the Lebanese state. And I think that's what's missing from this conversation. To what? To dement? To dement the Lebanese state. And I mean this in, in sheer violence. I don't mean this mm. in terms of politics. Mm. I don't mean this in terms of their, ent their entering parliament and, and becoming ministers. None of that. Mm. I, I mean it in terms of they effectively assassinated a group of Lebanese politicians. That mm. not all of them are this sort of U.S. sort of uh, pro-American uh, toxic way that I think you may have pointed to somehow in the piece, almost like mm. dis discredit these people, they're pro-American. This includes intelligence uh, officials, this includes MPs, mm. this includes a former prime minister. Yeah. 
and yeah, and this includes my father. He's the most recent assassination. So that's yeah. So they, these are my father was engaged with dialogue, and they, yeah. they were part of that too. So it's not they're using violence at any sort of yeah. a, attempt at changing the status quo. Now that, that goes back. I don't know about that at any attempt to change the status quo because there have been many times where because of a balance of power, they've been forced to concede, to shift, to change their approach, etc. For me, the question is how do you find that nonviolent way to do more of that? That's my that's that's what I'm interested in. Let's go there. That's that's a nice segue. Uh, we were talking about force and pressure earlier, and I'll, I'll quote you to you again. I, I'm mm. doing that sort of. Well, oh, these long Germanic sentences. Okay, no, sorry. No, contrary. No, no, no. You actually, <laughs> I actually thought they were uh, just the right line. Yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, hmm, I'll quote a Be few kind. sentences from you to okay. Yeah. If U.S. policy towards Lebanon continues on its current trajectory of collective punishment, mm. or even hardens further, the prospects for wider instability misery and violence will mm. only increase for the Lebanese people and the people of the region mm -hmm. at the same time Hezbollah will probably be the last man standing given its strong position in the country compared to other local political actors mm -hmm. and an understandably exhausted citizenry let's mm -hmm. let's go into force and pressure when you're talking about the Trump policy or whatever you want to call yeah. it yeah would you lump these sanctions and what we've seen recently in the last few months sort of the, the targeting the banks, or even calling out particular officials. Not all of them Hezbollah members. In the most recent round, we didn't have any. But Amal and the Frangie guy, his name escapes me mm -hmm. now. Yeah. I forgot his name. Is, is that part Fenianos. of yeah. Thank you, yeah. I, I turn to you for these names. I, yes. I forget them. But is that part of the force and pressure tactic that you find unfavorable? Or is, ah. that, is that something else? So, so I have a problem, one, with the unilateral American-only sanction policy. Mm -hmm. I have a problem with that globally. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have an ideological problem with that. Mm -hmm. One is that I think that we need to do these things multilaterally. Okay, so that's an important distinction. Mm -hmm. But here, the real problem that I have is that these Trump maximum pressure policies, they're not about trying to end corruption. They're not about a reform. They are obviously just targeted to try to reduce Hezbollah's operational space to put more pressure on Iran and Hezbollah. They don't actually, they're not actually operationalized for an anti-corruption agenda, for example. Mm -hmm. So what I call for in the paper is a fundamental reorganization or a redirection of the American sanctioning uh, fetish, which has expanded, which by the way was weaponized by Obama and expanded by Trump among these many loaded weapons that our party gave to Trump, but be that as it may. Um, the idea is to shift around. And for example, you know, I mean, of course, you know, the sanctions against Hezbollah that exist will continue on. Sure. But what we started to do was we tried this idea of secondary sanctions. So what we do is it's all centered around Hezbollah. It's if you're friends with Hezbollah, that's who we want to split off or that's who we want to try to hurt and use carrot and sticks. Because the issue for these guys, the Trump crew, the maximum pressure crew, they don't care about, I mean, you think Trump and Pompeo, these guys care about reform and anti-corruption? They don't care at all. They know that. Look at how they operate in their personal lives. You think they care about this for other people in the world? No. So what I'm saying is let's get on the, if we care, 
Stop trying to focus on personalities and parties, okay? And give Lebanese institutions the robust tools for doing the anti-corruption work. So, for example, you know, I mean, I think you and I know there's a lot of corruption in the country, right? So, you know, why is Berri's number two being targeted? And why is Lehman Frangier's number two being targeted? We know why. It's because of their relationship to Hezbollah, because this is maximum pressure against Hezbollah and Iran. They don't give a damn about reform in Lebanon. What I'm saying is let's turn that around. And what it should be is, and what's cool about Lebanon, is there's actually a lot of room for agreement on a multilateral level. So, for example, corruption in Lebanon, as opposed to corruption in many places. You know, is there going to be a UN veto by the Russians or the Chinese? over anti-corruption sanctions, for example? No, and that's much more powerful because that has more legitimacy. It has more effect, by the way. It's harder to do, yeah. You gotta do the hard work of building coalitions when you do multilateral actions like that. Europeans can get on board with that, but what should they be focused on? They shouldn't be focused on whether or not Rani is friends with Hezbollah or whether or not there's a Shia or a bank in a Shia area, as is unfortunately one of the rumors that we're hearing now, and which indeed is a part of the draft legislation by hardcore Republican Trump people currently in the Senate, is to have Treasury Department sanction banks which are in Shia areas, okay? So that's the road we're going down, which I would argue, you know, has been, the stage has been set for that for quite some time. I'm saying let's reorient it. Focus on anti-corruption and reform, not on making everything about Hezbollah, because the only way to deal with Hezbollah's independent weaponry at this point, unfortunately, it wasn't the case 12 years ago, but at this point, you have to deal with it through a regional framework, a regional de-escalation and a regional security architecture, which reasonably deals with and offers bargains for, unfortunately, the idea that Hezbollah is a tremendously efficient, powerful force right now in the entire Middle East. And it ain't going to give up its weapons, you know, through, uh, through pressure. It's not going to work. You know, you're not going to send the Marines there. Not even Trump is going to do that. Um, so you got to find an alternative pathway. Engage your mind. And again, as somebody who's not with your words, not Lebanese, you're looking at it just purely through the American sort of story, U.S. policy. Um, I'll ask you just a question and we can sort of go from there. Uh, mm. Do you think the Biden administration, should it take shape in November, uh, in January next year, uh, will have reform and anti-corruption mm. as a policy towards Lebanon, which by default will include Hezbollah's capabilities, because that is part of the story. But it yes. will also include any sort of any corrupt activity in the country and they'll see it as the, that's an existential issue for the country. Do you think the Biden administration would take a very different approach than the Obama administration and in that sense? And I mean that yeah. and largely just in what, what you just said, yeah. which is stop pointing at one group, point at the whole problem and treat mm -hmm. it as one, one issue. Yeah. Do, do you see that as, as on the horizon if, if Biden becomes president? I think there is public indication from people like Jake Sullivan, who will probably be the national security advisor who's written about this extensively. It's a great article in May in Foreign Affairs about this. Everyone realizes the key problem, and again, it's an excusable problem because somehow excusable, because they didn't bet on Trump. They didn't bet on Trump. They thought that they were going to have a second, a third term. Um, 
the fundamental mistake of the Iranian nuclear deal was not linking it to a regional security dialogue. Okay? The Iranians wouldn't allow it, and the oh, team Obama wanted to get the Iran deal done. And they made, the, made a kind of short-term deal, believing that in the Hillary administration, there would be enough uh, political capital for the reformists in Iran, and that the money would start flowing, and that then there would be an ability to have a regional dialogue on all of Iran and their allies' activities. And by the way, you could then deal with the Syria war, you could then deal with the war in Yemen. Okay. Obviously, we know what happened, right? I think the lesson learned from that is that uh, Biden campaign has said it, and Joe Biden has said specifically he wants to return to the Iranian nuclear deal. They also have said that there has to be a regional security dialogue, and it has to put at its core Saudi-Iranian relationships. And that as a part of that, let's use a lot of the pain and suffering that the Trump doctrine has caused against all sides, really. You know, and we're in the middle of COVID and we're in the middle of, you know, geoeconomic shifts, especially around energy and the, the vulnerability of ruling families. And, and, and let's leverage this moment where after four years of Trump, even his allies probably want to break. Right. Even his allies probably want to break. And even Trump's allies and the most vocal like MBS and MBZ, they're going to have to realize that there's force majeure now. I mean, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party has the votes to cut off arms sales to Saudi Arabia. It's a huge thing. So what I'm trying to, sorry, sorry to be long-winded about that, but the, the point is to return to it is that in a Biden administration, there's the possibility of, they, they know that the mistake of the Obama-Iran process, let's say. And the ability now is that you can return to the Iran deal and things are so bad that there's natural interest for everyone with a little bit of pressure and goading to have this regional security dialogue to figure out, hey, for example, like I say in my paper, can there be a one year freeze of the Hezbollah Israel conflict? Right. And you uh, just spell out even how you can de-escalate the, the problem altogether and that even sort yeah. of you touch on the IMF and, and yeah. what that really means. Right. I, I want to step back and I know I've already taken a lot of your time. I've sort of there's two That's issues true. I want to get to b before we jump to coup d'état and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The bittersweet finale. Every political figure with authority today in Lebanon, all of them, whether it's the caretaker prime minister, whether it's Hadidi before, whether it's Hadidi potentially returning, Birri, uh, the names that we mentioned earlier, the number twos that are involved, everybody, own. Mm. Jaja, the whole mm. crew, everybody, mm. and I know I'm leaving many names out, that they are still around mm. because they are either direct or indirect supporters mm. of mm. Hezbollah's status quo in Lebanon. I know I don't want to beat this dead yeah. horse, but, but no, I got you. That they are what's left, and they are the group or the individuals that Hezbollah tolerates in Lebanon mm. today. Yeah. Would you, would you agree with that sentiment? Uh, that's a that's a tough one to agree with. I mean, I know what those guys would say, which <laughs> some of them would say, and, and you I'll, know, the opposite. But I'll, I'll elaborate. I, I'll elaborate only in that if if Hadidi is to return, yeah, he's returning to a situation we all realize, yeah. and the fact that he's been returning many times over is let me, let favorable me, to Hezbollah. Let me let me answer it that way 
or this way by saying that um, I think from a personal moral point of view and from a U.S. interest point of view mm. that uh, leaders in Lebanon who want to go down a path of confrontation that likely leads to violence and very bad outcomes, and by the way, won't work with Hezbollah, I think that that's extremely reckless. Now, I'm saying that from a personal moral point of view, that I, I don't know if I have much standing to say that as much as I love Lebanon, but from a U.S. interest point of view, purely. Confrontation um, with Hezbollah militarily. Yeah, yeah. Not, not it, confrontation in terms of... Well, I, yeah. in other words, but that's what we're talking about because one party has weapons. So what I'm trying to say is that a return to the frameworks and the approaches of pre-May 2008, I find that to be both uh, obtuse in the sense that it won't lead to the desired outcome and morally quite reckless. And that I think there has to be a different approach. So I don't want to condemn the Lebanese political establishment or favor them. But I will say that I think the, the leadership in the country, um, and I think so honestly, I mean, most I mean, of the citizens... I know, yeah. And I know we're time constrained, but I want to just yeah. ask you, what do you mean by, who, what is morally reckless? Discussing and their... I mean, what, what do you mean? What is come, exactly? having another May 2008 scenario, which means a confrontation with Hezbollah, so especially even, even declaring a security agent in the airport is morally reckless because Hezbollah has weapons. That's that's what you're getting at. No, what I'm trying to say is that when you lead your followers or people down a path of confrontation that is not going to actually lead to the outcomes that you say it should, and that also is going to leave a lot of death and destruction and potentially cataclysmic. So the special tribunal for Lebanon is a morally reckless endeavor no, today. No. Today, something no, no. like that is a no. No, okay. no, no. That's a multilateral UN judicial body. I have, I may have different problems with it, but it's certainly not morally reckless. No, 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 no. Uh, what I'm me, saying is, yeah. But the, let, me, the, let me let me get this. So in 2006, Unifil 1701. Mm -hmm. Is that a morally reckless if it's supported by Lebanese on the ground in Lebanon? Are they no, okay? So, so it's not what I have a problem with is it's not dismissing Hezbollah's weapons as a morally reckless cause, it's actually doing something about it. That's no, what, no, it's 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 forcing a violent confrontation where a lot of people could get killed that don't have a vote on whether or not that's a good idea. And by the way, to add the cherry on top, it's going to lead to an opposite outcome. So, it's stupid. So those are the two. Things. I see. I see. So any domestic uh, confrontation with Hezbollah from your side, military confrontation, one that likely leads to violence is or is likely involves violence with use, Hezbollah, is is not a good idea. Let's use an example. Morally or strictly. Let's use an example. Let's use an yeah. example. Uh, we can name him by name. Jumblat uh, suggests firing a security chief in the airport. Mm. Does that fall into the morally reckless category? Ooh, uh, I can say this just because you know I was I was there afterwards. Uh, we were all there. We know we know that we know that yeah, yeah. No, no, but, but, that, but yeah. what he saw, what he saw from Clemenceau, you know, and I was with him a few weeks afterwards. Is he saw that he couldn't fight Hezbollah? His supply lines were cut, so he could last for another month or two of fighting. What I'm saying is that he realized 
he had started, helped to start a violent confrontation that ultimately led to the deaths of, you know, more than 100 people. Nick, and that also Nick, didn't work. But I, I get so, this. So, yeah, that was, that was morally and strategically reckless. But I get, I get something. And I want, to, again, you tell me if I'm getting this wrong, that you're mm. giving Hezbollah a pass. You're really no, I'm saying, pass. no, no, this is, so this is, I think, the crucial thing to get out. I'm not giving you a pass. I'm saying that if you want to militarily fight them, it's going to be morally and strategically a disaster. This isn't a, this is military maneuvering. This is no, firing the state official. But we know and that it's a security person who's favorable to Hezbollah's terms. But That's has not a military. I totally I totally agree. But Jumblat and the Bush administration, I would argue knowingly led the country down a path towards a violent confrontation with Hezbollah. They knew very well that if you fire the airport security chief and if you go after their most important weapon, which is their private fiber optic network, that that was considered a red line as a military attack on Hezbollah. Now, Hezbollah's wrong on that. Let's say Hezbollah's wrong on that. Sure. But what I'm trying to say is that we can have an argument about whether Hezbollah's right or wrong about that. That's not my that's not my dog, right? That's not my thing. What I'm trying to say is that they knowingly led the country down to a violent confrontation on the street that had all of the possibilities of sparking a far greater civil war, much greater than it was. It turned out that Jumblat and their side was less less equipped to fight it. Okay? In the end they in the end they lost. And in the end, a lot of people died. And what happened from that was the Doha Accords, which helped to empower Hezbollah. So it didn't work. It clearly didn't. Not only did they lose on the battlefield, but Hezbollah got the Doha Accord. They got the blocking third. They were on their way to what ended up happening, which is ousting March 14th. Nick, there's no battlefield. There's no battlefield. There's no competing militia against Hezbollah in Lebanon. Renegade no, fighters, renegade, renegade kids with guns. It's not a battlefield. That's why you can't separate out Lebanon from the wider Middle East. The wider Middle I, East is a yeah, battlefield, I get, I get especially that. at that period in 2006, 7, 8. Remember, Iraq was a battlefield. Remember, I mean, there was a whole, there was a, there is till this day a titanic struggle. It's a I, war going. I, I agree with the inevitable outcome, which is that it is, it is a regional issue for sure. I think it would yeah. be very difficult to make this only a domestic story. Hezbollah is not a domestic story today. Domestic that, story. that is clear. That is clear. Yeah. But, but that said, I think it exposed that they are the they are the power brokers at least when it comes to the security of the state the sovereignty yeah. of the country and turns out they had the hard power balance yeah yeah and i don't know if maybe there's a disagreement here that they eliminated politicians yeah. who were willing to do state functioning not violence not militia like opposition they killed state builders so that's part of the story and i don't know if i mean maybe i maybe I mean, we can. We should have another. Wait, wait, wait. But remember, but remember, yeah. at that point, it was very important to put that in the context. There were 150,000 American troops in Iraq. There was a huge war going on. So when America's local allies talk about a certain perspective and a direction towards Hezbollah or their opponents, they're talking about that with the threat and with the actualization of American power, military power, being deployed all around. I think right. champions of Lebanese sovereignty in Lebanon should not be dismissed as American allies. I, I think. I Why think is, that's not a bad thing. I don't think no, there's no, no. a problem with American allies. So, but before ending with coup d'etat, which is still, that's, that's the hanger. I'll just, maybe we can wrap it up on this point. Um, that 
I, I would not go as far as saying uh, that this is a an outcome of U.S. mismanagement or poor decision making or or bluster or everything that you've described the Trump era, which has been extremely chaotic. Um, I think, if anything, the events since since largely since two thousand five, but primarily since two thousand six, mm. have exposed Hezbollah for really what they are. And mm. This is a civil war era group that that functions today with a lot of flexibility. And they mm. also have entered politics, and they they are obviously embedded in the domestic quagmire. Yeah. And they have a regional say. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's impossible to get to the bare minimum. This is my personal opinion. The starting point, I think, should address that group's capabilities, not put it on the shelf for later. And that's why, that's why. The noble goal, I think, you may not think it's noble, of neutrality, or at least the, 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 the attempt to shield Lebanon, which you also you suggest in your piece that there is a yeah. need for it. There's a way to do it, yeah. And there's yeah. a way to do it. Um, I think that solves Lebanon's problems in the long run, in the long yeah. run, which is that you don't need a country to fall sort of fall apart whenever there's any regional problem. Yeah. You don't need a country like Lebanon to endure 30 years of Syrian mismanagement or roughly 15 years now of post-Syrian order decay and chaos, corruption and the like. So I think I think Lebanon mm. deserves a break and I think it deserves a Definitely. break from, it deserves a break from Hezbollah's weapons. But now, the question yeah. is how you get there. That's the question. How do you get there? I that's agree. why that's that's the difference between us is, you know, I'm not more tolerant or loving Hezbollah's weapons more or less than you or whatever. It's a question of how do you get to that end point of normalizing Hezbollah? And hopefully that's a part of an overall reform strategy. And that's why one of the most important points that I talk about there is if there's a regional breathing space, then Lebanon can finally have the national defense strategy dialogue that it should have had before the 2006 war was kicked off, when indeed they were involved in it, when they were much weaker, when they had less power, etc. That should start now, but that can only start, that national defense strategy, and figuring out how nonviolently over time you relate Hezbollah's weapons to legitimate state institutions. That dialogue can happen, but it can only happen if there's breathing space in the regional framework. And that's why the Trump administration is against giving any breathing space. They are on the maximum pressure track, which won't work and certainly will not get rid or deal with Hezbollah's weapons and certainly won't deal with it in any kind of a morally or strategically acceptable way. That's that's why we just we, we disagree on the best path to go there. Saying neutrality is great. But what's the exact pathway? How do you deal with a huge, powerful force like Hezbollah in a nonviolent way to start to relate them to a reformed, legitimate state? You got to do a bunch of things. I agree with you. And I also think the, the beauty of October 17 is that everything was being discussed, including that group's weapons. True. And, and I don't think they deserve a pass simply because they're too powerful right now. And I, I agree, and I agree, it's, it is definitely beyond Lebanon's borders. Yeah. And that, that is true. And how you get there, Macron seems to be still betting on either basic reforms or humanitarian aid. I no, he's, bet, he's betting on the Biden administration. He's betting, he's betting on, on change. Let's say he's betting on many things that, that may not pan out in the end, but whatever mm-hmm. those bets are. 
Um, I think they'd be better served to have a conference the way you're describing and the way you elaborated in mm -hmm. your piece, where uh, as well as well as weapons are discussed in a regional yeah. context. That's why I'm confused by how you read my paper because I'm putting, I'm not giving a pass to Hezbollah. I'm putting their weapons as the centerpiece. I'm just saying there's a, a different pathway that's reasonable morally and strategically to deal with it. No, that's I, all. I, I read from your piece and I, I could have gotten the wrong conclusion, maybe. Yeah. Is that uh, reform mm. is a noble goal, and I share that. Yeah. Um, Hezbollah is too controversial right now. And that's what I got. In other words, in other words, don't discuss oh, their well. weapons before. Don't discuss their weapons until the situation is favorable to discuss their weapons. No, I mean, look, look at point number two. The, the, the four main points that I'm talking about is that return to the Iran nuclear deal. Two is a regional security dialogue, right? What are the third and fourth points? First of all, the third point is about the U.S. needs to put pressure to end Sheba right. Right? So, no, no, I, I, I may have misspoken. You do lay yeah. out. No, no, and I. Okay. Yeah, that, I mean, it's the centerpiece. It's the no. centerpiece. Yeah, but you're betting on a year-long pause between Israel and Hezbollah. In other words, the the stage is not there. That that is something you should shoot for in the long run. Right now, right now, Hezbollah is exactly what we should accept. Yeah, but you cannot government. you cannot imagine any peaceful dealing with Hezbollah's weapons if Israel and Hezbollah are in a hot war, which they currently are, especially that, in Syria. That's a disagreement, and I wish we had more time to get there. Actually, okay. That's something we, maybe we, we could do this another time, because actually sure. it's, the, it's a very productive disagreement. That sure. We had. Yeah. And okay. it's too bad there were a lot of agreements too, but maybe we can get to those next time as well. Deal, deal, deal. Uh, let's wrap it up with a nice story. Kudeta. Mm. Were you there on Halloween, the first Halloween we did? Did you come down there? I came, I think... The first few nights, I don't know if it was the first, first few nights. I don't know if it was like number, I don't think so. No, not the first one. But I mean, let's just hear it from your side. Can you take us back to a different time altogether <laughs> for a moment? <laughs> Imagine, I mean, August 2010. So this is before Bouazizi and Tunis um, in November. This is before the Syria revolt, before the Arab revolts. Um, and, uh, and really, when we look back at this, this period of, Post-2009 elections, you know, there was a real, for me, there was, and this was the Obama administration, there was a real chance to not have benign neglect for Lebanon, which favors Hezbollah, as you've said, and I think a lot of people agree, but for really starting to address de-escalation and rapprochement track with Iran and also putting pressure on Lebanon for some real reforms. But unfortunately, the Obama administration didn't get on that track when it came to Lebanon for many reasons. And so, At that time, so you opened a so bar. So we started a bar. <laughs> so we opened a rooftop, a rooftop bar that if had. You can't you know, affect policy. Just serve a few yeah. drinks instead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a lovely spot, by the way. A great spot. I mean, sadly, right in front of the port. Of course, it was destroyed in August, um, and uh, some people lost their lives around in Nazir and that area. Um, very sadly, it was nice because it was the first rooftop bar where. You could see Skybar, the VIP sort of glitzy one. And we yes. actually, you know, we used to get free fireworks because <laughs> when Skybar had their million dollar firework evenings, all of our patrons were able to enjoy it. But, you know, they told us, you know, I, I, I do like this kind of, you know, maybe it's silly, but they told us that uh, no Lebanese and especially Lebanese women in high heels would ever walk up five flights of stairs <laughs> to a roof, you know. There's no elevator kind of thing. And I, I'm proud to say that, you know, we buffed the, uh, 
the, the assumption of, uh, of the VIP Lebanese uh, milieu. My first <laughs> night there was with a woman who was wearing her high heels. And she was <laughs> talking about Napoleon, how Napoleon used to wear heels. And he could do this, <laughs> so she could do it too. And actually, you know, I'll say this. I, I spent many evenings at Kudeta. I loved mm. the background traffic because it's not the usual Beirut traffic. It's the highway yeah. traffic, so it's soothing. Yeah. Yes, the yeah. view that was unblocked, unfortunately, yeah. it's the port, but for yeah. many years, it's an expansive view. Yeah. And honestly, uh, it was a place that you could go out, have a great time, but not feel like you're forced to look a certain way and maybe sort of sp spend outrageous yeah. sums. Yeah, I, I have only fond memories of uh, oh, that's nice to hear. And uh, I'm glad that, I'm glad in, for one thing in particular, uh, we're friends and we can disagree on something that's, for me, unfortunately... Yeah. Uh, become so personal and so part of my own I life. Know. But, but I think we kept it civil. There's a lot more Absolutely. I want to get. Uh, I, I'd love to keep talking with you about other issues as well. We may have, by and large, more agreements than disagreements. Who knows? But, but anyone that's been listening to this episode, uh, the article will be linked to the to the uh, to the details box. Uh, the video version, we both, you know, we're, we're very old, but that's fine. Stop. We'll, we'll okay. do it again. We'll do this again before we completely expire. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Good luck with your upcoming events. And yeah. um, the next few weeks are very critical. So let's stay in touch. Maybe we'll do this after, after the election and see what happens from there. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs> <laughs>